0: you
1: going okay um it's just sort of a day it's been a little bit since we've had a weekday recording
2: yeah middle of well you know i mean the world is uh changing
1: i have to work from
2: work now so i can't pod on the clock it's uh you can
1: remember a time when when that would happen the home work divide Mm. is in effect y'all How about you, Seth? How's everything happening? What's happening?
2: Uh, It's good. You know, it's also a day, but you know, I'm chilling. It's like a rare, like under 90 degree day.
1: Yeah. It was like blazing, sweaty, hot, disgusting the last like two or three days. And today it seems pretty temperate. I, um, my stomach is feeling a bit frustrated with myself. I'm feeling a bit gastrally blue balled because I went to get a coffee and a donut at Dunkin', <laughs> and I forgot the donut because I don't often get a donut. So it's not really part of my routine. And normally the like cashier is the person who gets your donut, but it seemed like a busier day and somebody else was in charge of giving you the donut. And normally they would give it to you as you're making the exchange. But here now it was like, you get your pastry with your coffee on the other side. Uh, mm-hmm. I was a little bit rushed. was also a little bit stoned. I ordered and I immediately forgot that I had also gotten a donut and I was just fixated on this latte, which, um, I don't ever get, uh, whipped topping really, but they were like, do you want whipped topping? And honestly, she was speaking quietly and I didn't know mm-hmm. what she said. And I was just kind of like, yeah, and I, then I looked at the receipt, and I was like, oh, I got whipped topping, so I'm Damn. just kind of living well, with that.
2: Well, good thing about whipped topping is that most of the time, you, it doesn't hit your straw until you're, like, done with the drink.
1: Yeah, it's really nothing. It's, like, it's just sub. It's just physical substance, but it's
2: hollow. Mm-hmm. Damn, you went to Dunkin' Donuts, and it made you Funkin' Go Nuts.
1: Wow, America truly runs on Dunkin'. Mm-hmm. You know, there are more Dunkins than... Any other kind of fast food establishment In New York City Can't relate to that Coastal, It's elite. crazy Yeah, I'm running Yeah here it's just Starbucks on every corner I wish You know I do I feel like now Starbucks for me is like I go to the doctor In the city And I like get a dumb Starbucks Drink Yeah It's not bad it.
2: sometimes it hits but also some I don't know I've been in a time or two and sometimes just the drink they make is bad. And I'm like.
1: Yeah. i read reading I'm... some articles recently about those like crazy TikTok insane drinks that like ruin oh. Barista's lives. Like the mm-hmm. like Harry Styles refresher. and Yeah. I mean all that's all not. A, I remember things. like on Tumblr and on Pinterest they had
2: like their little secret drinks. their off menu stuff they would share. But TikTok has really amplified See, it.
1: Back in my day, we had none pizza left beef, and we had the McGangbang, and that was about it. hmm
2: I mean, I remember people po- in, like, high school, they were talking about the secret menu and all
1: that shit. Yeah. But now this is just... It's, it's at another level. level. Yeah. Everybody's trying to hack a menu. Yeah,
2: everybody's trying to, like, get one over on, like, the corporate <laughs> restaurants...
1: But it's mostly just getting one over on underpaid, exploited service workers. Fucked up. Well, yeah, that's the thing is that the people that have to deal with
2: it are like getting nothing out of it. Either they're trying to get one over on these people or they're like trying to get the BTS meal.
1: (laughs) But yeah. 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 I feel like we maybe have new listeners because our last episode has been mighty popping. Oh, yeah, that's true. That's the that's the Gita Jackson bump, the Gita bump. It's real. Um, so if you are a new listener, we just want to thank you for coming along for the ride. Thank you for tuning in, checking us out. We hope that you will become a return listener an investor, a true believer, whatever mm-hmm. your parlance is a, repeat a
2: player, a power listener, maybe. Wow. You're in the shark tank. Mm -hmm. You're swimming with
1: sharks. Um, So, yeah, um, that's like our it's like our fourth most listened to episode in like less than a week. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. Most
2: of the other ones kind of hit numbers like that. Yeah. It's on the
1: pike a little bit. Yeah. You know, we had our first one and our and the theme park one have been really popular um, just cause those are very good, like introductory episodes, I feel like. Um, and obviously people listen to the first episode of a podcast cause they're trying to figure out what it's about. Mm-hmm. Um, and the mind virus one from this year has been hitting, but it's cool, you know, to see, uh, a new flock emerging, some new lambs in the fold. We've also gotten like a little bit of fan mail over that
2: episode, just like responding to the different stuff we were talking about.
1: The mailbox. I mean, it's only natural to have a mailbox section since. The show is just a series of boxes within boxes
3: this should be played at high volume
0: preferably in a residential area
1: 2 by exactly. TNT's the
2: cube. Yeah, but it's not it's not a one way. Not a one way exchange for sure.
1: Yeah, so we've got two emails which is pretty sick. Um mm-hmm. the first one, I will say, is rather lengthy. Um, I may skim over some parts of it, but the person who sent it is is a pal of mine, so I don't think he will be too upset um, if I abridge a little bit. He knows he's long-winded. But this comes to us from Andrew, uh, who is also co-host of mine on the good old Cemetery podcast, which definitely check that out if you have not. Um, And also he does a like weekly Saturday soul stream on Twitch, which is pretty fun. You know, he's a very astute guy and he talks over the stream while gaming. It's it's nice. Mm -hmm. Uh, So anyways, this is on the topic of souls. The subject line is Hotboxes of Souls podcast now. Hey Nadine and Seth and Gita, this is Andrew, uh, Dark Souls streamer extraordinaire, co-host of Cemetery, etc., etc. Been listening to that show since the very first episodes, and have never written in, but had to contribute to the Dark Souls conversation because these games have broken my brain. Should also say that I follow Gita on Twitter and have been living for her Dark Souls tweets, tweet updates. Uh, So it was great to hear her elaborate further on the experience. Her tweet about playing Dark Souls on Friday and not thinking about anything else all weekend is very relatable, as is a meme she made about a Dark Souls thing that I don't understand. Um, (laughs) I wanted to say a bit more about these games' relationship to their reputation and the culture around them. Definitely had the same conception that Nadine had, not knowing anything about the games other than they're hard. And it was supposedly common for experienced players to tell newcomers to get good Which Andrew spells in Larry the Cable Guy style? Um, Lost my place. Uh, In request, in response to request for advice, I actually put off playing the first game for several years after it released on Switch um, because I was intimidated. But once I committed, I realized. Something I never would have otherwise. It's definitely true that it's hard, um, but in a very specific way that makes you consider it carefully. But Souls fans make up a genuine community of people dedicated to supporting each other rather than mocking or competing in a metagame of one-upsmanship. No one has ever told me to get good. My immediate community was made up of several current and former students. Uh, Andrew is a high school teacher um, who would chime in to give advice as well as a few friends who served as Sherpas. Um, But there's also a broader community that Seth and Gita alluded to of people creating videos and podcasts about the game to explain lore or swap strategies. I think most people's automatic response to this tertiary media is that it's cringeworthy fanboyism. But I think this community is actually kind of beautiful um, and was cultivated intentionally by the game itself. Um the game is very cryptic in how it explains its own mechanics and lore. Um and yeah. Um there's just I feel I feel like I am reading a lot. I'm so sorry, Andrew. Um uh I'm gonna skim over a little bit of this. Um lead developer uh, Hidetake Miyazaki has a lot of sweet little stories explaining why he made certain design decisions. One of which is a story about his car stalling on an icy road in the middle of a snowstorm and a bunch of strangers getting out of their car to push it back into commission. Um, but then he has to drive away before he can meet or thank the people. So one of the central themes of the game is about the value of mutual aid. We live in a brutal, unforgiving world built upon suffering, but it remains meaningful and tolerable when fighting through it alongside other people. Keita mentioned the Janice Rose article about dark souls and capitalism. And it's absolutely right. The game takes place during the last days of fantasy feudalism, but its ideas are most applicable to the late capitalist hellscape. We currently find ourselves in. I could go on, but I'll stop myself there. Um, And he goes on to say that he is thinking about making a Dark Souls video essay, um, Dark Souls slash cinema video essay, and mentions his Dark Souls stream, which you can find twitch.tv slash Andrew Swofford, that's S-W-A-F-F-O-R-D, every Saturday at noon. And then he apologizes for being incapable of writing short emails. Love the show, Andrew Swofford. So yeah, um, uh, with with that, we are definitely a, a Dark Souls podcast now, I guess. Yeah. In Dark Souls fan mail. Um, I can't really comment on the game specifically, um, but I definitely at least resonate just kind of in general. I think that that's can sometimes be the case with not every fan community, but with certain fan communities that have this reputation for being really intimidating and foreboding, and there maybe is like a little bit of a knowledge or experience barrier, but once you find yourself in it, it's actually like much more welcoming. Like, I don't know. I think it's ridiculous comparison, but like juggalos a little bit like that. People are like, who the fuck are these weirdos? And they're the sweetest people in the world. Or like, I mean, a lot of wrestling fans can be like that. There's a lot of shitty dipshit wrestling fans, but there's a lot of them where it's like, you're intimidated because they know a lot. And you think that you're no, you're like an imposter or like, don't know anything. Um, and then eventually you find out that they're actually like sweet, welcoming people and that they just like, you know, want to enjoy this thing with you and, you know, maybe, you know, explain, educate you in the, in the kind of in the process, um, and help you along in your journey of like discovering and learning more about this thing. Like, and that's not every fan, you know, there's definitely outliers, but I think that's, you know, speaks to Andrew's experience of the Dark Souls community. And yeah. I think just rings true across a lot of spaces.
2: Oh yeah, for sure, but I mean Dark Souls is just like it's like a difficult video game I don't you know, yeah, and gamers, we all know. Yeah, and I mean gamers is just like a like a cultural identity or whatever is something that just like brings with it a lot of baggage or things like that cuz it's like most of the time people who are lonely and spend a lot of money to like have the the machine for the hobby and have the like software and stuff for it. So it's like mm-hmm. there's a big buy-in for it. And people sometimes can be like entitled in like a really loud way. It's kind of intimidating about definitely. it. definitely. Um, but I mean, like with most things, I mean, you shouldn't let other people ruin stuff for you.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really funny. It's like, I don't know, just like thinking about super fans. It kind of reminds me of, uh, I was not going to talk about wrestling On the unboxing, but I just really quickly want to mention this like thing that I'm kind of obsessed with now. And I'm like, I want to find this man and make a documentary about him. Um, but there are several like notorious super fans in like the history of wrestling that you see like in the front rows of the shows of certain companies over and over again. And sometimes they're like beloved kind of characters, you know, the guy who wears the same hat or t-shirt every time. And other times they're like people that they're like heel fans, basically. They're like annoying or obnoxious, and there's this guy, there's basically none other more notorious than this guy named green lantern fan who's this nerd who has been known for wearing a green lantern shirt at wrestling shows since the 90s he first emerged on like a 93 episode of raw where he proposes to his girlfriend with the help of bobby heenan um, and the front row Um, and then he became uh he was really known during ecw and became most notorious um during ring of honor. And he just like, he's this guy who is very loud and sort of like had a kind of entitled relationship to the product where he felt like he deserved to sort of have relationships with the wrestlers and the workers and like deserve to be a part of the show. But he would also do things like he would like bring a stopwatch to the matches and like time the matches and post the match times online like david bordwell of wrestling but not just that he would like you know if it was like a match where it was like an hour time limit and an hour's up he like calls out an hour and it's like trying to like stop the match allegedly you know because it's like going over the time limit and so he's like this just you know just intense militant nerd um but at the same time, you know, it's like he and, and there's rumors about him online, like going to like some wrestlers wake that he wasn't invited to um, getting kicked out of different shows, all this stuff. You can find promos of like the Dudley boys and Eddie Kingston and wrestlers like going off on him. Um, and he's like, you know, this kind of obnoxious entitled fan, like really like the worst kind of fanboy imaginable. But at the same time, it's also like, at least within that universe, it's kind of fun because he gives this villain you know, he, he's, like, made himself into this villain and gives these, you know, workers a chance to, like, say, like, go off on a heckler, basically, or, like, cut a vicious promo or say something iconic and hilarious, like, because of his antics. So, anyways, um, just on the nature of fans, mm-hmm. kind of interesting to think about while Definitely. we're reading fan mail. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, I mean, I can say, like, a little bit about Dark Souls from, like, what I've played. Like, I haven't really played super deep into them, but what I've noticed whenever I play them is like, yeah, they're hard and you like die a lot. But like, since you die so much, it like, isn't that big of a deal in those games. Like in a lot of games, whenever you die, you're like, Oh, God, I got to go back to this checkpoint. I have to fight through all this stuff. And it like adds like, even like an extra five minutes to get back to where you were. Um, Mm -hmm. But I don't know. So usually it's like a pretty grating thing whenever you die in some other video game, just because it's like, makes you repeat stuff over and over again that like isn't that fun to play many times but dark Souls is kind of the main thing people say about it and what i've noticed when i play it is the way that it like like it's very repetitive but through just the general repetition you start to like play it really mechanically mm-hmm. or like very much like a machine i don't know you just become super efficient like running down this way knowing how this enemy behaves you can kill this enemy and.
1: Mm -hmm. i don't know it's like a a person movie being a model just repeating lines over and over again until the emotion is drained out of it totally um but i remembered after getting this fan
2: mail there's this essay i read years ago about dark souls that was like a huge deal and i like or at least in my mind i like i don't know it really just made me think about a lot that i hadn't really before in terms like video games and like the real world um Mm -hmm. but it's published at vice at gita's workplace uh but it's this essay called how dark souls 2 reflects our historical and political anxieties it's by brendan vance and i guess we'll put it in the show notes but um i mean worth a read if you want to kind of explore some of the general like relationships between like that game and themes and like real world stuff because that's what most people compare it to like andrew mentioned it in his email about it kind of just like reflecting our like political and like uh economic conditions and stuff capitalism yeah exactly but the real hook of this is that it starts off like talking about the band the strokes and like their like rapid rise to fame and then kind of steady decline or just like drop off after after the debut Um, did hear a theory recently that strokes are a psyop well time to update this essay then because i think that (laughs) could add to it but it's interesting how it just like I don't know, relates like rock music and kind of popular music to economics and then back to the game.
1: It's really cool. Yeah, that is very interesting. Um,
2: But we have one more piece of fan mail before we get into we the do. other parts of the episode. Uh, this one comes from Daniel, and Daniel says, hope you're doing great. I had a question while listening to the previous episode of the Gita, but I saw Scotland play England and all thoughts left my brain. Great podcast, though. Uh, i haven't listened back to every episode but i'm curious for nadine and seth to speak on the fire emblem game franchise and then daniel just it for fans and says that he's kind of casually dabbled for a while but the game on switch three houses that was a pretty big hit um it's one of his favorite games uh storytelling is highly dramatic but rewarding in its ability to play with tropes of the genre i kept wondering about my relationship to its storytelling after listening Do you three discuss the ideas of prestige and seriousness in narrative video games? Intrigued to know your thoughts. Take it easy and hotbox that shit, your semi-sober friend Daniel.
1: Damn, too bad Gita was not here because she's covered Fire Emblem a lot and written a lot about it. Mm -hmm. And would love to get a. It's one of those like, kind of like not
2: crazy like popular in the way that like people think of Fortnite and stuff, but Fire Emblem is like a pretty pretty big game franchise especially for online readers
1: Mm -hmm. Um, i have no familiarity really with it um just a sort of vague awareness of its existence i
2: guess for people who aren't crazy like aware just like is really old japanese like role-playing game series made by nintendo but like you know coming out since like the nes and like the 90s Mm-hmm. all the way till now there's like a couple games on like each nintendo platform uh characters from that have been in smash brothers since the beginning i think i think marth's in the first smash brothers
1: oh right yeah okay this is my this is how i know of like what fire emblem is like basically yeah because of smash
2: it's anime swords type like fantasy <laughs> stuff um i've only like played like two on the three DS. One was Awakening, which is like I feel like that's like a really well known, well received one. And then the sequel to that I played Fireman Fates. And I really loved Awakening, but not Fates. I don't know. I feel like those are the first like turn based games I got into, which is just, you know, you have a big battle grid and then you move your units around. It's kinda like chess. And then, you know, you just try to like shoot arrows at people or block them off or protect people or Mm -hmm. Um, so it's fun but it always really relies on like character art and character dialogue and stuff and sometimes like the story scenario of like each of the individual like games of chess you play over the course of the thing um just because otherwise it's boring otherwise it's just like chess but it's more complicated so i mean really good ones are like about the relationships between the characters and how they have like gameplay dynamics that they like complement each other on and stuff um at their best, that's when they're most interesting. And I thought that first Fire Emblem was was good and like that, but then Fire Emblem Fates, the one I played after that, I just, like, could not... I didn't like the characters that much, mm-hmm. and it just made me totally bounce off that game. But, I mean, since then, I've played, like, a lot more, like, Japanese role-playing games and stuff, and I've grown to really appreciate it, but Awakening was, like, a great one to kind of start with. So if you have a 3DS... Mm -hmm. that's uh that's a great one i don't know if that's one of the ones you played daniel but yeah it's pretty classic into the fire yeah but you know it's always some crazy shit it's like somebody comes in some there's like an imposter and then you find out they did like a time skip to get into your timeline and it's just it's always the most ridiculous stuff when the game is actually just playing chess goodness but yeah that's that's i think all i have to say really about the fire and moon games
1: uh thank you daniel and, and andrew both for writing in um it's very nice to have two weeks of mail in a row new for mm-hmm. us new record i hope to keep it going mm-hmm. um you know yeah, you can sure. email us hotbox the cinema gmail.com or you can just dm us on twitter or instagram wherever we are just shoot us something or a voice memo maybe even Mm-hmm
2: but yeah, any, I mean, you could send anything to that email address. It doesn't have to be a letter.
1: Literally anything. A drawing will describe it. Mm-hmm. Um, a sound. Yeah. Yeah. Something you'd want us to watch or inflict upon us. But yeah, so I guess we're uh, closing up the mailbox and then opening up another box.
2: Fuck. for a while especially over the last like year i was just like watching a bunch of movies and stuff and i've noticed in the last couple weeks i have just like i don't know either been busy or distracted in a way that i'm just like i don't it's not even i can't pay attention i just like don't really think to watch one as of late but mm-hmm. um i've been playing like a little games but one movie i did watch this week was william friedkin's cruising mm. which is Uh, a controversial a rich text definitely Um, yeah for those that don't know it's like it's like a crime thriller murder mystery where al pacino is like 80s new york cop and there's uh, a serial killer who goes to gay bdsm clubs and like kills people and so al pacino has to go undercover as a detective to investigate where this is so he like What's controversial in part because of the story of, like, a police officer, like, acting like a gay man who's, like, going around and cruising with, like, colored bandanas mm-hmm. and stuff in his pockets. Um, so, for that reason, it's just already a bit of a... I don't know, it's complicated, but I don't think it's, like... I think it does a lot,
1: though. <laughs> yeah, I think cruising? it's a movie where it's, like, at the time just given the like general like spectrum of limited queer representation at that time like it's understandable why people would be upset about it because it's like oh like a movie about a gay community and it's like from this outsider voyeuristic perspective and sort of creating this link between violence and and uh, non-heteronormative sexual
2: relationships and stuff. Maybe mainly like leather and like fetish type aesthetics. Yeah.
1: And it has a very like, from my memory of it, it feels like that kind of very, I don't know. There's a lot of, I can't really think of them, but I feel like there's so many like procedural kind of undercover. I mean, something like, witness you know with harrison ford amish movie where it's like oh he's going undercover this outsider this regular guy and you have a little like this sort of study of this like foreign world that the audience doesn't know and cruising is like way more like complicated and sort of moody and stuff but it does feel a little bit like you're learning about this world like very specifically like yeah it does feel like like going to the like leather shop and stuff
2: well, yeah, totally. Part of, like, the character's, like, story, like, just what happens is he slowly, like... There's no scenes of him, like, just, like, mouth on the floor, jaw dropped, like, in shock at something he's saying. But there's always just, like... feels like you're being introduced, like, little mm-hmm. by little to, like, just regular parts of, like, that, like, BDSM club culture. Yeah. And just, I mean, well, so one reason that people also talk about this movie in terms of like representations is that it's like one of the few representations of like pre AIDS gay New York. Yeah. Yeah. So like, I don't know you just don't see anything like that. Yeah, like, no, totally. especially like with that kind of like film budget behind it.
1: Yeah. And it's something, one of those things where like so many movies inadvertently become documentaries of like the time or place they were made. And in even it, like I think.
2: the buildings, like the literal clubs that went out of business. <laughs> Yeah. Got club,
1: clubs that went out of business neighborhoods that basically don't exist anymore also, and have been totally gentrified and people who like, you know, there, cause there were a lot of like non actor sort of extras, like in these real clubs. And um, it's kind of hard not to assume that a lot of those men were probably dead, like within the next decade, you know, like in this movie. Um, so it just sort of brings a lot of feelings, I think. Definitely.
2: You know, whenever we, like, criticize stuff like this for, like, like in-movie, like, narrative content in terms of, like, representations and stuff. In this case specifically, obviously there's this frame of, like, the police officer kind of, like, coming in mm-hmm. to this world that he's not part of. And that's how the audience gets brought there instead of thinking, well, maybe the audience member's, like, already there and, right. and getting introduced just because they're maybe not the intended audience. Usually, like... Well, so with this one, there is like some weirdness in terms of like the production of it, though, because like the way the movie got made in the first place is like, like a little bit more like materially like exploitative or like fucked up than just like a story about a cop acting gay Mm -hmm. is because I feel like even the story is like, like the, the outsider frame, I feel like applies in general to like many parts of the movie and not just like the story of the cop. I feel like it's like not unaware of that. Mm hmm. But the way this movie got made is that William Friedkin, he was approached with adapting this novel to a movie. And he, like, denied it at first. He was like, I don't, I'm not really that interested in it. Apparently, part of what really convinced him to get interested or just, like, piqued his mind about the story is that there was, I mean, actually, like, a string of, like, serial, like, gay club murders Mm -hmm. in New York City at the time. But also one of the extras from The Exorcist went and killed a gay critic who worked for the village voice. Wow. And William Friedkin was like, just became so interested because one of his employees did that or something. And so he like went and like interviewed this man in prison to like understand the mind of a gay killer more.
1: I mean, it's kind of interesting because I just remembered as you were talking that one of William Friedkin's first movies, which I haven't seen um, the boys in the band, just like based off of a play, I believe Um, And it's like about a group of of gay adult men and it was like one of the first Hollywood movies really about Openly gay men and it was just remade like last year or the beginning of this year Mm -hmm. i've already forgotten for netflix by ryan murphy and I think people were like, oh, this is just this sort of like toothless like, you know, trying to sort of just like claim Queer history but kind of wallpaper it over and smooth it out um, and I know that that's a movie that people also have a lot of complicated feelings about. I mean, not as explicitly as something like cruising, cruising which is just very like I said, I sort of say cruising at first. Oh, I think cruising I said cruising for it. a bruising. I think I said it when I it. Uh Just southern as fuck. Um, but it is kind of interesting thing about this director. Who I mean, I read his biography at some point. I don't really know a lot about his sexuality William Friedkin, but I mean, I think it's fair to say that he's an outsider to queer community probably, but it is interesting thing about this director who had this earlier sort of semi-controversial movie about gay men sort mm-hmm. of revisiting this world in a very different way, a very different kind of gay male experience. Um, but making a movie that is deliberately about like a air quotes straight, uh, mm-hmm. you know, outsider observer entering this world it's kind of a little bit of a metaphor I feel like for Friedkin like himself sort of making a few movies that are about a culture that is ostensibly not his own
2: yeah well I mean so the main thread in cruising though is like I don't know the general frustration or saying this movie is like exploitative because it's about like a cop and about an outsider coming into this world I feel like doesn't understand that that's like the core tension of the movie yeah definitely um, where a lot of like a lot of the movie is really focused like it's a It's, you know, like a a serial killer, like, investigation movie, so it's, like, a little bit of, like, a like a psychological thriller, just, like, you know, just thinking about why somebody does this. But it's also a very psychological movie because it's so focused on Al Pacino as he's, like, realizing that maybe he understands it Mm -hmm. because of his own, like, identity and just kind of coming into, like, that. Like, a lot of the movie is just kind of watching him kind of open up to... That idea, or maybe just
1: like realizing that he like isn't who he thought he was, you know. I mean, it, it's a very different tone and tenor than like Brian De Palma, but it does sort of remind me of a little bit of like body double with this like Craig Wasson, like straight laced kind of guy but who's also a little bit of a peeping tom like entering the world of of pornography and he's you know presumably like investigating playing a character but it's also like why are you entering this world what is it to you like what are you getting here is there something more than just you trying to find someone um mm-hmm. is it yourself you're trying to find maybe yeah i mean it's like uh, it's like body double is like very overtly about that because it's so cartoony and like referencing hitchcock very deliberately and cruising is much more murky but yeah. i think it has you that know. kind of like interest in voyeurism yeah people call it
2: like american giallo and that's kind of i feel like accurate to like some of the tone of a lot of the scenes and stuff um yeah like people like protested when it was being made because it was being made in new york and a lot of these neighborhoods and stuff Mm -hmm. but also like they were like shooting in gay clubs like as a string of these like murders was happening like actually during the filming of the movie so that was part of the reason why people were like protesting but also just like for a movie that's so much about like being an outsider to that world i mean Mm -hmm. it's like bringing cameras in places that like
1: the cameras like were normally not really brought Yeah, I mean, it's a super sensitive kind of space and a pre smartphone kind of space, also. And also, spaces too that were like, from my remembrance of reading into the production of the movie, like, um, you know, sometimes sort of illicit, like mob owned clubs, Um, which is something I think people forget about a lot is that a lot of gay clubs historically in the United States have sometimes like been run by the mob. And it's like a weird sort of enemy of my enemy is my friend kind of outside the law alliance, at least when like gay clubs were sort of more of a a direct under kind of legal threat. I mean, obviously there's still a lot of danger and, and still, but uh, when these places were like much more like underground um, and stuff. So I think there's just all of this kind of like, Energy sort of like exploding of just like different, everybody's at like kind of at odds in the like production of the movie and the movie itself. Um, and it just feels like I feel like you really feel that like tension in the air of it almost.
2: Yeah. I mean, the movie is like, like pretty electric with tension the whole way through just because of like all these different, like just very different
1: like energies, mm-hmm. like you said. Yeah. I mean, I think Friedkin is a. Such a weird director because all of his movies are do a lot of them do hit these like different distinct genre points. I yeah, mean, like French Connection, The Exorcist, like yeah, very yeah, different. Yeah, like I've only
2: seen French Connection in this, and just like the difference between them was pretty staggering.
1: Yeah, yeah, but there is like I don't know if I can exactly articulate it, but there's something to all of them where there's some kind of weird like distance Mm -hmm. or kind of it's like there's something that feels almost a little bit clinical. I mean, I know he like started off making like TV documentaries and I feel like there is a sort of documentary tenor to a lot of his work. And I do think like, you know, cruising, like the French connection, the exorcist are all sort of like based off of like, kind of real air quotes and you know stories and books and stuff like that and i feel like it's like both abstracted but there is a sort of like investigative impulse i think to his movies maybe
2: yeah totally well that's definitely one thing is like just one thing that distinguishes them is there's so many just like moments of just like staring at a character who's just like standing there i don't know they're very kind of airy letting stuff letting stuff go for a little bit, not in a rush, um, which I like. Uh, one thing, uh, real quick, the relation between French Connection and Cruising is that Gene Hackman, who's star of French Connection, was apparently the first choice to play the cop in Cruising. Weird. And the reason was because they thought Gene Hackman would give the role an androgynous quality. What?
1: Yeah. I have never associated Gene Hackman and androgynous well also like at well actually it makes a little sense at that point i was talking about this with a friend the other
2: day because this friend was like it's crazy that gene hackman was only hot as like an old man like, when I mean, he was guess, young, he, like, wasn't hot at all. And I'm like, yeah, it's because, like, he
1: needs... His face needs something to distinguish yeah. it, whether it's, like, a mustache. I glasses. mean, it's true, I guess. I Now that I'm thinking about it, he is not really a sexualized leading man. I feel like he does have this cultural perception of just kind of always being old. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it's also funny to think about androgynous in relation to, like, the coach in Hoosiers.
1: Yeah, but also in, like... Well, I think, too, like... Um, God, what was the movie I was thinking of? I mean, I think there are some movies, like, during his sort of prime, like, I haven't seen Night Moves, but I think that he's more of a maybe, like, s- sleeping around yeah. kind of guy in well, that movie. Even
2: then, that's a movie where he had a mustache. He had something on his yeah, face. Yeah,
1: but, I mean, the conversation, I mean, come on, that's a fucking incel classic. I mean, yeah. dude is, like, has the Catholic guilt, like, a chastity belt around yeah. his dick. Yeah, and the whole movie is and just destroys like destroys his apartment in a furious frustrated rage like so i mean now that we unpack it gene hackman makes sense you know i didn't think of him as like homoerotic maybe but the sort of like distance from an active kind of sexual life is maybe what they're talking about more in that consideration
2: yeah i feel like gene hackman is somebody who just like well cruising is a is a you don't want to talk about a movie where someone feels distance from sexual identity and is maybe celibate. Yeah. Maybe, maybe it would have been great in cruising.
1: Yeah, no. Um, well, one, actually one quick thing about cruising too, is that, so all the club scenes, um, you know, they have this kind of like industrial, mm-hmm. like rock music. And that is not, what was playing in those clubs it was like the soundtrack and dance music and they cut that out and they put
2: in Um, the germs yeah which is like i mean it rocks i'll be honest but like
1: yeah like it aesthetically it you know it sort of links up and i mean obviously there's a lot of like queer hard rock i mean judas priest around this time helping for leather like there you have it but it's just it's just it's just a very cast a very different light on this community um and and, and you know it's trying to purposefully give it this kind of darkness or edge like as opposed to having Definitely.
2: like donna summer yeah it's it makes it very uh you know it just it tries to be this antagonistic vibe in many exactly, different ways yeah. and that's usually the thing people contend with and the music does kind of fall in with that yeah uh, but also a lot of the clubs are modeled after this one called Shaft, that wouldn't allow them to film in there, mm-hmm. but it was just like, probably like one of the bigger ones if you ever read about that period of like gay culture in New York, like this is a club where like Rainer Werner Fassbender and like Michelle Foucault would go, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> which is so funny to me, yeah. but
1: God, the, yeah. p- the Panopticon party, mm-hmm. um, well, I think that cruising is actually a weirdly some, kind of a good segue into our topic for today's episode because New York City cops mm-hmm. talking about the strokes being at well, strokes. Also,
2: Actually, this is a great transition because yeah. it's about New York City cops who are out of place, who
1: are out of who place, are being and,
2: assaulted with gay life. Somebody yeah, kisses and, Bruce Willis on the mouth and die hard. And you,
1: you think about it. So, yeah, we're talking die hard. We're going hard, we're getting hard yeah uh like the not um, that's not a sex joke that's a reference to the will ferrell kevin hart comedy um that's which is not what we're talking about though kevin hart does have a new show called die Hard, um an action show with john travolta a roku original um oh my God. but yeah die hard i mean it's kind of fascinating because i don't know this is just diving right into it but die hard is this like you know New York City cop street smart invading the streets of LA it's kind yeah. of a i mean it's kind of a Beverly Hills cop sort of thing when you think about it but unlike Beverly Hills cop at least in the first die hard we don't see New York we don't see where John McClane came from we don't see the streets that he cleaned up allegedly And then coming after, like, the 80s of New York, you know, the kind of the the Death Wish era, you know, when everybody's like, oh, Times Square, porno theaters, the Warriors, street gangs, you know, you got the fucking Guardian Angels, the ridiculous, like, red beret wearing uh, vigilantes patrolling the streets, just like, you know, I don't know, that's the kind of, not to say that it wasn't there weren't a lot of issues in New York, but this kind of the perception of that era. I feel like it's like, Oh, it was a nightmare. And then it got cleaned up and Giuliani came along and the Disneyfication of New York and whatever. And, and I don't know, just thinking about like John McClane being somebody who like as a New York cop, who's, you know, NYPD is supposed to be the like toughest in the world. This, you know, they got the street mm-hmm. smarts, they got the grit. Yeah. He's going finest. to, he's going to Hollywood baby. And it just kind of has this like, it just kind of—I feel like—immediately brings that sort of baggage up of like New York as like crime-ridden, authentic, where you, a place where you need a cop. L.A. skies—it's skyscrapers, it's rich yeah. people. You don't need—you don't need the police.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, so part of the reason the movie is so popular is because the whole thing is just about like traditional American macho guy going up against like la in the 80s which was like the the yuppie culture globalization Mm -hmm. all that so i mean the movie came out at a time when like after ronald reagan was president and just kind of carries over a lot of those politics of like oh look at this american who's being like assaulted by un-american values and culture and all that i mean this is all you know acting like we don't enjoy die hard you know die hard is a it's like a
1: machine. It's just, it gets the job yeah. done. I mean, this is basically our Christmas in July episode. Um, yeah, it's also a Christmas movie. Which, I mean, that's the thing, though. Talk it's about the American whole, like,
2: values, you know?
1: Ex- well, exactly. That's why that's why I'm bringing up Christmas, because it's just like that's kind of foregrounds that sort of, um, you know, the sort of um, all-American Christmas holiday on, you know, the decorations on this skyscraper of a Japanese-owned multinational corporation. It's sort of this cultural fusion. And so many of these, you know, we're obviously you can't really talk about Die Hard without talking about the numerous copies and knockoffs and just general yeah. influence and, and of sequels. it on action movies. Yeah, and the sequels, the whole franchise, the many deaths of John McClane. Mm-hmm. Um but I mean so many of these movies have that, like, Lethal Weapon and just Shane Black in general, all Christmas movies. I watched Turbulence, which is, like, one of the several Die Hard on a Plane movies with Ray Liotta as a serial killer, uh, like, stalking a flight attendant on a plane. Mm -hmm. And it's a Christmas movie, too, which feels very much, like, of this era of just, like, screenwriters. You know, that feels like such a fucking screenwriter device of, like, let me write my movie at Christmas... Like, so I can have all this like stuff, detail stuff going on, mm-hmm. family themes, whatever. I don't know. Um, but it's all, but it also just kind of foregrounds the sort of like cultural values. And I guess it's interesting because it feels like, I mean, people talk about John McClane as such a turn from the hard bodies of, of Stallone and Schwarzenegger and Dolph and yeah, just and like Bam, the... et cetera,
2: et cetera the everyman the everyman man picking glass usually, out of his feet yeah i mean the whole like ide- his identity as a character is just like being just like kind of old-fashioned and out of style like american values
1: yeah and it's and it's just it's fascinating that it is seen in some ways as this physical turn because it's like I mean, it's still sort of like going to bat for these same kind of values, but in a like, uh, in a way that's somehow like honestly feels weirdly like more fucked up than a Rambo movie because the Rambo movies are kind of fundamentally all about the trauma of the people who are made to do the dirty work of imperialism, mm-hmm. and there's something about like John McClane where he's this sort of vessel a little bit where it's like he's just doing these things to because he ha- has to or like to yeah. save family you know he's just defined by relationships <clears throat> saving his estranged wife saving his daughter saving his son mm-hmm. he's defined by the people around him not him himself really as a character and i feel like that makes him in some ways like he's just sort of like, yeah, I have to do these things. And there's no questioning. Whereas with Rambo, it's like, it's all about the questioning, basically. Even when it's like thanking the Taliban and there's all these explosions and stuff, it's still like he's crying because he was fucked over by his country.
2: (laughs) Well, usually like these things kind of serve as like conservative fantasies, which is why they get really popular. But the thing they're like fantasizing about is different. Like Rambo is a movie that's you know, creating this really distinct situation of, like, this uh, veteran getting to do whatever this veteran, like, getting, especially in the second one, getting, like, revenge on Vietnam, essentially. Yeah. Um, And just going and doing really excessive violence as part of that revenge fantasy. But in Die Hard, it's like this, uh, it's like, uh, he's like some, like, getting divorced dad who has, you know, his job's awful basically Mm -hmm. like it's just the fantasy of like a white man who's like having
1: who's getting assaulted by every part of society that like having the worst day ever it's it's proto like michael douglas and falling down like white man rampage a little bit oh
2: yeah well the thing is that this isn't like some white guy snapping like with nothing like no pushed yeah well usually it's like him snapping in reaction but this one is him having to do like terrorist attack disaster response like it's a hostage crisis kind of movie so it's like he never it never goes to the point that it's like the white guy snapping mm-hmm. but it's like this is know. necessary yeah exactly but i mean so like the first movie is it's directed by john mctiernan the god who wrote it do you remember
1: um, oh, so it is. Oh, this is, you know, I, I with the Christmas thing I mentioned, like that just feels like such a screenwriterly device. And this is, and and this is really an era of of big Hollywood screenwriters. Um, and this is sort of one of the first big movies by Stephen E. D'Souza, Souza, who had previously written Forty Eight Hours um, and oh. Commando, The Running Man, but would go on to do movies like Die Hard Two uh street fighter judge dread turbulence which he did uncredited rewrites on um knockoff Lara croft tomb raider cradle of life um so very much in that school of like a shane black or um ah oh fuck what's his name like the the erotic thriller guy who wrote all of paul verhoeven's movies um um who did like basic instinct and showgirls just like i don't know it's very interesting in that era that you have these like hot ticket like blockbuster screenwriters and mm-hmm. they're kind of like watch uh, wars like but a, a br- they're also theme. brand names yeah a little bit yeah like they just wrote these very specific kinds of m- movies um, well and like shane black is known for
2: like a tone he's known for like his type of like comedic yeah fitting i mean also like he writes like kind of crime movies and stuff but i feel like i don't know it's like a branded type of like comedy
1: yeah and i think you yeah you look at steven eda credits and and it's much more like blockbuster than shane black usually but um still has that kind of i mean 48 hours obviously has like buddy comedy you know it's there's still that it's still very much that like with well, yeah, the action movie. Well, yeah, it's a buddy comedy thing with Eddie Murphy in it, you know? right? And that's what people also like always talk about, kind of with Die Hard too, I think, and with Bruce Willis is like, yeah, you know, Commando, and and all of the '80s action stars have like those catchphrases and the very kind of slogan hashtag punchline almost kind yeah. of like put it on a T-shirt quips. type. Yeah. Where it's really awkward. Um, but with Bruce Willis, it's still so quippy, but it's like because he's just a regular guy, not this like big accented foreigner. It's yeah. more like it's taken more like Shane Black, I think, where it's like, oh, this is like a well-written action movie. You know, I don't know. Just think about the reception of like Commando versus Die Hard, even though they're the product of the same mind. Um, Commando is seen as trashy and, and Die Hard is seen as respectable. And I think that's partly because of Bruce Willis. Yeah, which just, I don't know, John McTiernan also, you know, I mean, somebody else who endless mark on on action movies of the era. I mean, you know, Predator, um, Hunt for Red October, Last Action Hero, one of my favorites, the remake of Rollerball, mm-hmm. um, and somebody who, you know, uh, in, spent much of this century behind bars for wiretapping his producer Mm -hmm. didn't he do that on the rollerball remake yeah yeah he had some disagreements with his producer about like what rollerball was going to be and what kind of film it was going to be and that movie i think is like really actually politically incisive i mean it's about this like sports entertainment league of american athletes in a post-soviet Uh, Eastern Europe and they're basically just sort of running wild with all this crumbling infrastructure just like capitalism run amok in this place and you have like Paul Heyman and Shane McMahon making cameos so it feels very, it just has an Attitude Era energy and I think actually has some kind of things to say about capitalism but they were getting into disputes over how that movie should be and John McTiernan I guess got incredibly paranoid um, and wiretapped him Um, and so his last movies were Rollerball and Basic um, with John Travolta. Um, and I remember hearing once that like some people speculated that like John McTiernan had been sort of a, I guess like a vocal critic of, of Bush too, um early in his administration as mm-hmm. like a lot of Hollywood people were, you know, like going against coming out against Bush and signing petitions against Bush and stuff. And that like the federal government might've sort of like been trying to like kind of punish him. Yeah. Um,
2: well, I mean, he's also someone who like like earlier in life, and when he was making movies like Die Hard, was very conservative. But at this point in his life, especially after being incarcerated mm-hmm. for that, you know, the white collar crimes, he's yeah. someone who's like come out on the other side, and now is like a, a, a much more left leaning, like kind of outspoken.
1: His one dir- directing gig, like. Since getting out is, uh he did like a trailer for Ghost Recon Wildlands. Uh, would love to would love to see him get back behind the camera. But I mean, he's 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 somebody where, like, some action movies. You know, I think something like Predator accidentally sort of stumbles into these critiques about American imperialism yeah. just by being about this like squad of com- of American commandos fucking shit up in Central America, and then they get their ass handed to them. Um, as an invading force. Um, so I think things like that will sometimes stumble into these critiques, but I don't know. Die Hard, I think is really telling in that. So it's based off of a um, novella from 1979 called nothing lasts forever, which was inspired by the author allegedly saw the towering Inferno. So throwback way back to our theme park cinema episodes. Mm-hmm disaster movie vibes. He saw that movie and then he had a dream about a man running around a towering Inferno, flaming skyscraper with a gun. And so wrote this story, um, which in the original novella, the villains are not like, you know, criminals for, for profit. Um, they're like German dissident terrorists. Um, and so there's like a political agenda to their actions, which is not the case. In the first Die Hard, I mean Die Hard two, you have that. You have these sort of stray, loose ends of American fuckery in in Latin America in the eighties and and the Reagan and and contra all of that. But Die Hard one is just about these like guys out to get money, which is kind of a th- theme I've noticed in watching a lot of Die Hard knockoffs and sequels. Is that a lot of times the villains are inspired by some kind of financial incentive, mm-hmm. and a lot of times there are multiple movies where they are like pissed off veterans or pissed off government employees or contractors of some degree who didn't get their due or respect or were fucked over and now want money and they don't actually want to like change anything or take over the world they just want to be fairly compensated for their their for what they sacrificed or their labor or whatever mm. and it's just weird how a lot of these movies kind of like i mean it's the classic hollywood like thing where villains sometimes speak these truths of critique but the movie sort of misses that um and yeah, a lot of times it's it like you're watching this you're watching these movies you're watching speed 2 and it's like this would just be solved if we had healthcare. None of this would be happening.
2: Yeah, well, that's the thing. It usually, like, you have, like, a good, like, negotiation kind of introduction scene or whatever. Um, but, it, does, I mean, most of the movie is spent on the other side of that, that divide where you're kind of spent from the perspective of, especially in Die Hard, like, the people who are being attacked and being directly affected by this, like, political and economic demand. Mm-hmm. And so you don't really spend much time with, like, the people who, like, are, you know, I mean, you call them terrorists the whole time. Yeah. you don't re- you've learned like one guy's name maybe but they're just the terrorists Toms. and you know for the movie to be suspenseful it like doesn't really give them anything you know anything to work yeah. with
1: and i mean i think this is one of the interesting things about Die Hard is that at least the first one very much i mean the other ones kind of try to fill out this universe or whatever and kind of struggle with that but um, this one it's basically just this sort of mechanism it's where it's like very much about like the architecture and the space and the confines of it and just about having these sort of opposing people go at each other and you don't really need much like motivation or much of a MacGuffin to sort of string you along because that's it's just built into the structure of the movie Um, which is that's like what sort of you know you have the whole this whole knockoff subgenre of like die hard in a blank I mean, Die Hard in a plane or Die Hard on a boat like Under Siege or Die Hard in in Alcatraz like The Rock or just, you know, on and on and on. And that's just what's really fascinating to me is, like, I think that that's maybe what this change is in some of the sea changes of represented by Die Hard or in this shift from, like, the body, the physical body to, like, architecture to, like, this kind of, like from from flesh the form of flesh to another kind of structural form maybe mm. infrastructural
2: so are you saying like when you talk about like the shift in the body that the architecture do you mean like diehard like sees that happen or do you think it happened after diehard
1: i mean i guess just like diehard is like i mean i, I don't ever want to like attribute something to like one thing but i think diehard is at least like indicative of of that kind of Shift, yeah, totally.
2: Because the whole movie is like it's like weaponized architecture for the most part.
1: Great little passage from the Mike Davis book, Ecology of Fear, which I mean, obviously he wrote the great book City of Quartz about Los Angeles, which mm-hmm. which Die Hard is
2: very much about Los Angeles.
1: Yeah, and and that book has uh, you know it's not quite uh, Los Angeles plays itself, but has some good stuff about film in there. Um, But he says in this book, a premier platform for the new surveillance technology will be that anachronism of the 19th century. The skyscraper tall buildings are becoming increasingly sentient and packed with deadly firepower. The skyscraper with a mainframe brain and diehard actually F. Scott Johnson's Fox uh, Pereira. I don't know how to say that. Uh, mm-hmm. Tower in Century City anticipates a new generation of architectural antiheroes as intelligent buildings alternately battle evil or become its pawns. The sensory systems of many of L.A.'s new office towers already include panopticon vision, smell, sensitivity to temperature and humidity, motion detection, and in a few cases, hearing. Some architects now predict that the day is coming when a building's own artificially intelligent computers will be able to automatically screen and identify its human population and even respond to their emotional state especially fear or panic without dispatching security personnel. The building itself will be able to manage crises, both minor like ordering street people out of the building or preventing them from using toilets and major like trapping burglars in an elevator. So you, that like kind of proposes a future in which John McClane is automated out of existence and replaced by essentially smart, the smart house, Mm -hmm. computer um and so now i'm just imagining a diehard movie but it's just the computer voice in this building like trying to defeat it's like 2001 yeah or it's Um, like
2: uh the little like grocery store like motorized like police cameras
1: yeah i mean it's like interesting just i don't know when this was written but it's clear that it was a little bit ago i mean now you know you have like the amazon stores where you can walk out without like Scanning an item that you bought and it automatically knows who you are and senses what you bought. So we do have stuff like this. And, you know, it's very interesting when you think about it, that like there's this sort of idea maybe that like you would think that like a, the point of a high rise or a skyscraper or a tall building is to make space for as many people as possible. But it's not about that. The tallest buildings are, you know, the most expensive buildings to live in. And it's about giving more space to this elite class of people and having them you know able to see out and survey quite literally over this sort of world that they have a, a purview over mm-hmm. and and they're so i mean the t- the, the skyscrapers high rises the tallest buildings are the ones that are the most tightly regulated that have yeah. huge empty lobbies just with like security guards and scanners and key codes and all of these things and Just all this, it's just like, I walk by so many buildings in Manhattan where I look in the lobby and it's just like all this totally wasted, empty space, like just these panes of glass and then like a desk and like just vast stretches of nothing. And it just feels like this, almost this kind of flex of like, hey, like we can afford to not use this space for anything. We can just own it. Like, look at that. And you can't come in here. Yeah. Well, usually like in
2: these kind of movies we talked about earlier there's always this kind of thing about like the outsider coming into a new place so part of that in die hard is like the skyscraper but also Mm -hmm. the main thing that ties into with just like all of los angeles is that this movie is kind of about like a you know the traditional like white american dude um just coming into a place where like globalization and the effects of globalization are more real and so it's kind of just about like that like post reagan like anxiety
1: Well, you think about where John McClane is from, like, I don't know, historically, like, immigrants to New York City have, like, been absorbed into the working class and, like, are not, like, you know, becoming the, like, wheelers and dealers of the city. And this is about, like, him going to Los Angeles where you have, like, foreign investors from Japan who are coming in and now it's, like, their city. This is actually something that City of Quartz, like, talks about a little bit. Um, There's, I think, a chapter about... Or at least it gets into like how, you know, a lot of investment from Asia and California, like has changed a lot of things politically in the city. But I feel like this movie is about that fear. And I mean, it also stands out to me that the terrorists are uh, visibly, uh, you know, accented, noticeably accented, non-American as well i mean they're european so it does feel like this kind of like oh like europe is tr- dying and is like trying to hold on and america is like now america is like wary of of asia or whatever but it's like okay we're gonna like join forces and and take down the old order um mm-hmm. but i don't know it just sort of st- it just like stands out to me that you have john mcclain kind of between i mean i guess maybe it's about like casting america as like this sort of underdog you know um mm-hmm. i i listened to something recently somebody talking about star wars and how being so informed by like the politics of the 70s star wars is like a way for america to imagine itself as both empire and rebel you know like identifying with both vader and luke skywalker and i feel like it's sort of similar with john mclean is like the powerful one at the end of the day i mean he's literally a cop like but he's like, oh, he's the sort of the victim the put upon one here between these two like world new like world powers duking it out. Yeah. And America's well, the little guy.
2: That's part of the conservative fantasy is just like all the things that police officers have to sacrifice like that kind of thing. But um, I mean, you know, the like the set piece of the main building is that that uh skyscraper and it's kind of like you know it's the headquarters of like a multinational like Japanese business or maybe mm-hmm. not multinational but just like you know an international business from Japan um and it's this building that's like not even finished it's like not built well and not built to last kind of thing so I mean there's this anxiety about like Asian Americans like being a new thing as if like you know many like asian americans weren't like also displaced there mm-hmm. like in world war ii during like internment camps and things um so i mean this was a time when just generally you had a lot of like asian communities in los angeles in that area that were like rising to political power because they had like built like kind of a stable like economic base through family businesses and things like that mm-hmm. um but also the like the enemies in Die Hard are like people who like though they're accented and they're like different. Like one of them is at the Christmas party in disguise the whole time, and he's just putting on an accent. So there's this kind yeah. of like, you know, they're they're still white people, but they you know don't have like American interests at heart essentially.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even with the Europeanness, I think there's a lot of times in American movies when a villain is is European. It's like queer coding <laughs> um, yeah well that's like, that's
2: also part of it is like you know he gets kissed by a man at the party
1: and yeah and like freaks out about it one of the notable you know diehard imitators rennie harlan's the king of himbo cinema ray harlan uh cliffhanger with sylvester stallone which i read originally they were trying to get david bowie or Mick jagger as the villain to somewhat flamboyant english rock stars who have blurred a lot of sexual lines in their day like it just sort of shows what they're tr- maybe trying to go for <laughs> um by sort of othering this kind of villain and that is just something that you know i think just like pops up in in this whole kind of genre um i mean there's like a diehard prequel comic from a few years ago called die hard year one like obviously kind of a nod to batman year one by frank miller we talked about some on our Zack snyder episode but frank miller notorious notorious right-wing nut and it's just kind of telling to me that like this comic about john McClane's pre die hard movie like gritty new york days as a cop as a beat cop is like pat trying to pattern itself on this got this very fascist vigilante sort of writers like a vision of the world well so you mentioned rennie harlan earlier
2: and he did direct one of the
1: yeah like even though
2: he directed a, a knockoff he also directed uh the first sequel which was die hard 2 it, it was before they kind of started going with that like formula of like a sentence that includes die hard like well, the- it
1: is technically Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Yeah, so that's like a subtitle. But then, you
2: know, the later ones are like, yeah. A Good Day to Die Hard, Live Free or Die Hard, uh, Die Hard of the Vengeance. But yeah, he directed the second one, Die Harder, which, you know, if you think about the first movie being one that's so much about the environment, uh, you know, kind of the skyscraper being the stamp, you know, just it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's an architecture of globalization. It's like what represents capitalism at that point in time. The second one, maybe a little bit more honest with that, where the, the, the building of capitalism or the building of globalization isn't a skyscraper, but it's actually the airport.
1: Yeah. And you know, there's this whole sort of like plot kind of basically about like Iran Contra, Um, And it's just, again, sort of, I've noticed in a few of these movies, you have a lot of themes coming up of, like, just general, the, like, American imperial meddling, but, like, specifically, like, Vietnam, sort of prisoner of war, the MIA kind of fantasy, and stuff about, like, the Golden Triangle in uh, Southeast Asia, where the U.S. was, like, smuggling heroin and stuff. There's a lot of that. Like There's, like, a National Lampoon, like, 90s, 80s action parody, Loaded Weapon 1 which Bruce Willis has a cameo in and it's like a bunch of the plot is a bunch of gobbledygook about like heroin being disguised as Girl Scout cookies. And it's from the golden triangle. And there's just all this kind of stuff about like basically America's like bullshit around the world coming to like kind of the chickens coming home to roost and like coming to bite itself in the ass. And I feel like just having this like plate, like it's in an airport, you know, it's like the most, this liminal transactional kind of space of, of capital. And it's a Mm -hmm. place where like, america is being met by like it's dirty laundry basically and it's just kind of interesting in that regard
2: yeah also a little bit interesting if you'd like i mean to me like the franchise is like so related to like that 80s like conservative politics of like ronald Mm -hmm. reagan and i mean this is a movie about an airport where a lot of tension is like happens over talking in the air control tower and this is a movie that's made after ronald reagan fired over 10,000, like, union employees because they were on strike who worked all in the air traffic uh, control. Wow. And so this is a uh,
1: movie that, that takes place there after the union was busted. Damn. Okay, that's crazy. Um, it's also, you know, what's funny about this one is because there's a lot of snow, it's even more of a Christmas movie than the first one. It has major Call of Duty vibes. Mm-hmm. I mentioned Christmas because I wanted to make sure that you included a, a story of yours about, oh, yeah, watching is... Die Hard on Christmas because if it, it's pretty crucial,
2: I yeah. Think. So, um, I mentioned in a previous episode that um, I live in the city where somebody set up a bomb on Christmas this last year um just downtown did not really affect me besides like knocking out my internet service for a bit but i mean you can read all about that on your own time i don't really want to talk about it but
1: conspiracies
2: yeah i was talking about the security guard at my job the other day about this because he used to work at the place where it happened (sighs) and he just said the things people would like tourists would say to him trying to get into the street is insane oh god i bet um yeah uh but anyway so Um, I went to spend some time with my family, Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, wake up there, find out that this bomb went off. And my dad was just, like, watching the news on it, like, Christmas morning. And I was just, like, after, like, a while of them just kind of looping the same information, I was just like, Dad, this is, like, they're not adding anything new at this point. We're not learning Mm -hmm. anything. This is just, like, let's just watch something else. And he's like, okay, yeah, let's turn it to a Christmas movie. And, of course, he picks Die Hard and I was like, Oh, another movie about terrorism on Christmas. Awesome. God, it's a great movie, though.
1: yeah, I mean, it, it is. Um, but it's just sort of, but it, I, I, well, die hard also, you know, you have a sort of prominent role of like news media in it. And, um, there's like a newscaster character who appears in another movie, which is like weirdly like in the same universe as die hard. and um, it was written by Stephen E. souza uh, but ricochet by russell mulcahy <coughs> um music video director of of classic videos like total eclipse of the heart and video killed the radio star but also did like highlander and a lot of and silent trigger which we'll be talking mm-hmm. about a little bit later um but ricochet has like denzel washington going like pure joker mode as this like unhinged cop and it feels very much like it's about like you know, a cop do like doing crazy stuff and it being filmed and sort of broadcast. And there is that sort of global element too of just like that awareness of like this kind of spectacle of like, of terrorist events providing content for the news. And I feel like after Die Hard 2, you know, with Die Hard with the Vengeance, they expand to like this mini map of New York City, and they basically abandon the confined structural gimmick. And it's just like movies about terrorism and it's just sort of like I don't know it's become this sort of like representative of like I feel like a lot of American media where it's just like yeah we just we're just attacked all the time that's just what happens is yeah. terrorism
2: it makes it like kind of like an ambient part of everyday life yeah that like kind of the stereotype American man
1: exactly which is like that's just feels like very indicative of of that experience of, of watching Die Hard after seeing about a bombing on the news and I it's mean true you see so many like, well, I don't know. I think it's I, just a like something I realized and kind of stumbled upon in, in looking at the Die Hard franchise a little bit more. So, you know, I mentioned that the first movie was adapted by a novella. The second from a novella, excuse me, second movie also adapted from a book, but totally different author, different character, unrelated. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third movie, you know, is like sort of there were a lot of ideas tossed around. Um, one of them was dismissed for being too similar to Under Siege, knockoff of Die Hard, with Steven Seagal as a Navy chef taking back and like a ship from a crew of pissed off uh, former CIA agents mm-hmm. who are disguised as a Huey Lewis type band called the Bail Jumpers, performing on a USO concert, and they're headed by Tommy Lee Jones acting fl- flamboyantly in a leather jacket pretty wild movie. I mean, it's, it's not great, but just a lot of odd details and by Mm -hmm. Andrew Davis who did the fugitive, um, which is also like the fugitive is like in Harrison Ford, I think kind of had his big action, Heyday, and in, uh, in some ways, because of Die Hard and Bruce Willis, because it was like, oh, the normal guy, the dad, action hero. Yeah, it's body positivity is what it is. <laughs> dad bod positivity. Yeah. Um, As and all these more. and all these guys are kind of you know those kind of heroes are sort of they have their cleverness and their quips a little bit and just kind of they get beat up and but they make it and they save the family. I mean, Air Force One, Die Hard on Air Force One. And Trump oftentimes played the theme to Air Force One out of events and stuff, which that's a whole that's a whole nother tangent of is like 90s, like Clinton era political movies about like pre- the president who fucks like the, the president who has a family and has borne oh. seed. Yeah. But so that Under Siege, this, this, the Die Hard 3 screenplay that was too similar to Under Siege became Speed 2 directed by Jan de Bont and Speed. Also Die Hard and Hot Cop. The fourth yeah. one was a bunch of original screenplays. Um, well, the third and fourth ones were both like original screenplays had nothing to do with Die Hard that were turned into Die Hard movies. The third one was originally a, an original screenplay that was turned into a Lethal Weapon screenplay that was then turned into Die Hard 3. And the fourth one was based off of a Wired article. It was a screenplay called like ww3.com. You know, it's about oh. hackers and shit. Um yeah. and then they were like, oh, this is a diehard movie now, and they called it Die Hard 4.0, <laughs> which I like more than Let Free or Die Hard. Um I still like so,
2: World War 3.com
1: Yeah, I do too. I would watch the shit out of that movie. Yeah. Um, but
2: it is, you just kind of see this like overflow and like super saturation of like that type of like conf- conservative action fantasy.
1: Yeah. And so ostensibly the fifth one. A Good Day to Die Hard is really the only Die Hard movie, it seems like, where it was, like, from the jump, a Die Hard movie. But it was originally called Die Hard 24-7, so some people speculated it was a crossover between Die Hard and 24. And, I mean, I think Jack Bauer is another, you know, McClane descendant, not ancestor, Mm -hmm. um, of just, like, I mean, he's not, like, funny in the way Bruce Willis is trying to be. You know, he could not be Kiefer Sutherland could not be in Hudson Hawk, but it's the same kind of like dad, like sort of a little bit more normal guy who just happens to have a special set of skills, which then leads into like Liam Neeson and like the old guy action movies. Totally. Yeah. I mean, Taken is like absolutely that it's knockoffs all the way down and so that's what's fascinating to me is people are like oh yeah die hard wow it's a great action movie but it inspired all these imitators but it's like literally die hard was imitating itself it was just again it's like it kind of goes back to what i said about john mcclain just being defined by his relationships like these movies have just sort of been whatever was on hand at the moment a little bit like whatever the sort of trend was i've just been and so it's just this like ouroboros of mimicry ouroboros of mimicry <laughs> Jesus smoking on that Ouroboros and the McCree.
2: yeah I mean we kind of named off a bunch of knockoffs and there's like yeah, you know yeah. you can find so many more that are just like I don't know you can find a bunch literally out, like just looking at yeah. a list of like movies from like the 90s and 2000s that were action movies like a lot of them kind of bear that like that political tension all the way through mm-hmm. and most of them are structured as like like it's a white guy snapping movie but it's like you know, it, it just does everything it can to let you know that he, like, had to, you know?
1: Yeah, no. I mean, again, like, under siege, Steven Seagal is, like, a chef. He's just a lowly guy who happens to be martial artist Steven Seagal. Yeah,
2: and it's always <laughs> someone who's in, like, a thankless job.
1: Yeah, or, like, I mean, um, I think really the best, I think we both agree this is probably the best imitator, sudden death. With Jean Claude mm-hmm. Van Damme, which, like, I mean, you get into like these little subgenres of like the Die Hard on a Plane movies. And then there's like kind of the sports terrorism movies. Um, mm-hmm.
2: They're just, they just, like, it's always movies that like are attacking like national identity through sports. I like. <laughs> yeah. Y'all, y'all can't enjoy your pastime.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, Sudden Death, uh, like, has Van Damme as this, you know, lowly, like, it's in Pittsburgh, right? Like, lowly cop. I mean, final score from a few years ago, with Dave Batista is another sports one where he's like an American in England at a soccer game and the whole time it's a very like the kind of Bruce Willis making these sort of like outsider cracks about the whatever culture. It's the same kind of thing. of like, oh, do you guys call this football? Like, oh, but then he saves the day. Um, but I don't know. Sudden death. It's like, yeah, he's this kind of like just beat cop or whatever who, who really like, saves all of saves the day and i think you told me that it was like the idea was was developed by somebody somebody's wife like they're an arena owner or hockey team owner's wife or something yeah i think the movie like is shot at
2: well let me just get the specifics on this just to be sure
1: yeah i'm pretty sure it's
2: pittsburgh
1: That's what I'm um, thinking,
2: too. But I want to also figure out the actual, like, teams in the game in the movie.
1: Yeah. Because it's real
2: teams the whole way through. Yeah, it's the Penguins and Blackhawks. Okay, mm -hmm. here we go. So, like, the movie's, like, shot at the Pittsburgh Penguins Arena. Oh, it's Pittsburgh Civic Arena, which I don't know if that's what it's still called now. It probably has, like, a corporate name on top of it at this point. Mm -hmm. But the story for the... Or, like, the basis of the story was actually proposed by the wife of the pittsburgh penguins the hockey team owner and like the stadium owner and it's just fascinating to me to see like one of these movies that's about like just like the attacks on like the traditional like american man Mm -hmm. one of like the story well first of all this one stars jean claude van damme a little bit you know european a little bit ambiguous to a lot of american audiences And also it's at a hockey game, which a lot of people don't associate as like an American pastime. But also this one is comes from like, I mean, in like a bit of a dark way, like a fantasy of like the woman whose husband, like his life revolves around like hockey and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it almost just seems like some kind of like daydream of just like, oh, maybe that
1: would happen at my husband's job. Yeah. Punishing your husband for (laughs) being a workaholic almost maybe or like. Or on the flip side being kind of like, oh, like the Jean-Claude Van Damme character is this guy who like, you know, he's this like cop nobody cares about. He's not a hero. Like, and then he gets his chance. Once again, a divorced dad. Yeah. He gets his chance to save the day. And so instead of like, because you know where it comes from, instead of being just like, oh yeah, this is just some dude like dealing with his marriage issue. It's like, oh, it's this woman dealing with her marriage issue maybe. And like, maybe it's her like story of like not getting enough credit or something like that in a weird kind of reframed way whereas most of these again i think that like the divorced dad thing is like so true of just like it kind of runs through that energy of just like we're just like estranged from their kids or yeah so
2: it's a little bit of like a return to like maybe like an older archetype of like the lone wolf Mm -hmm. like american hero the lone wolf cop detective whatever you think about like dirty harry or whatever like that Clint Eastwood played a lot of that type of character.
1: Well, that's also an interesting thing because, again, on the note of knockoffs, Ricochet with Denzel Washington was originally going to be a Dirty Harry movie, but Clint said it was too violent to be a Dirty Harry movie. Clint said, turn in your badge. You're unhinged. (laughs) Oh, my God. You went went Scorpio mode. You went a little bit too hard there. Um, Yeah, you're a loose cannon. It's just like... These movies at their heart, you know, they're interchangeable. A Lethal Weapon movie can become a Die Hard movie. A Dirty Harry movie can become, like, a sibling to a Die Hard movie. I mean, conservative fantasy has been
2: in movies since, you know...
1: Yeah. ...for a very long time. I mean, it's... Yeah, it's the same kind of thing in some ways as, like... I don't know. It's, you know, that... It's not, like, uh, conservative necessarily, but just in terms of genre movies, I think of, like... I mean, like, The Magnificent Seven being an adaptation of The Seven Samurai, you know? Just, like... These genres, the iconography differs, but you can swap them out like interchangeable parts. And that's sort of like, even though Dirty Harry and John McClane and Rambo and whoever all have these different sort of styles and personas, what they're sort of leading to and pointing towards in terms of ideology is generally the same. Mm -hmm. It's just communicated a little bit differently so you can kind of reconfigure them all Because they're all like you said, you know dirty Harry. Yeah is about a white guy being pushed to the edge and he's like Can't take it anymore got to clean up the streets Punisher
2: I think the first time I watched dirty Harry Like my only real thought I had was that it was like
1: it was I called it white exploitation Oh, my God. Well, I mean, it's funny that that is the movie more than any other that I have seen like the most times in a, in a college class. I watched that movie in three different undergraduate film classes. I watched that in an action cinema class. Um, I watched that in New Hollywood. And the third was in this Awful, awful, like, neoconservative fucking bullshit Called Pop Culture and American Politics Which I signed up for because that could be literally anything And it was team-taught by this, like, Vietnam vet And, like, super right-wing, like, grad student Who are always trying to sneak their, like, Nixon-defending bullshit into lectures And we watched, like, Boondock Saints and Eagle Eye And Olympus Has Fallen And some episodes of Criminal Minds in 24 And it was literally, like... Yeah, we watched Dirty Harry too. And it was literally like teaching the, the principles of those movies like it was a good thing or something. Like defending America was a good thing. It was awful. Awful mm-hmm. class. But again, yeah, it's just kind of like there's a there's definitely a lineage. Um and I know it's funny that I mentioned Eagle Eye because I feel like watching Live Fear Die Hard recently was really interesting because it made me more apparent more aware of the sort of knockoffness of the earlier movies, um, and how they're sort of really uh, there's an interplay between the earlier movies and other action movies at the time because live clear Die diehard is basically that sort of like tony scott eagle eye surveillance thriller with john mcclain dumped in
3: mm-hmm.
1: um and it's very weird because i mean there's all these kind of cracks about him being outdated and like an old piece of technology and you have kevin smith in there as a hacker nerd who's like also a like cb radio obsessive and so you have this contrast between digital and material yeah and also
2: he played he plays gears of war in that movie which i think is a very (laughs) intentional or not i think a very on the nose comparison between like that Mm -hmm. movie franchise and that game franchise
1: Mm, yeah um and i mean you've got justin long as a hacker which feels like Stunt casting because he's the Matt guy, a little bit. And there's a scene where, like, his apartment is, like, getting blown to bits, and a Terminator action figure falls off a shelf which like reminded me of like in the evil dead when like a nightmare on Elm street poster gets torn up or something. Um, but it just was kind of making me think about how like Terminator is very much like a cyborg franchise. Um, because it's been like, you look at the pr- production history of it and it's been passed around between studios and distributors and companies. And just at every turn, every Terminator movie has basically tried to be a reinvention. um, so it's almost like, this is a stupid comparison, but, like, a pop star like Jessica Simpson, where, like, her first album was, like, anti-Britney Spears, like, c- Cookie Cutter, like, Cornbread, White Bread America, Wholesome... You know, No Sex at All, Chastity, Ring, all that. And then the next album was like, oh, we got to change it up because people are losing interest. Like, let's go full Christina Aguilera. And then the next album was like, oh, let's be real and authentic. And then she like pivoted to country. And it was just like every album was a reinvention before even figuring out what the core was. Um, and I feel like that's like Terminator a little bit, like every movie has been trying to figure itself out. And so it feels very much like a robot cobbled together from junk. And Die Hard, I think, is kind of the same a little bit where it's just like, here is this man. And how do we see the world through his relationships to family uh, in Die Hard 3, the black community of New York City, <laughs> um, you know, just like all of these groups that are so- outside of himself. How does he relate to and interface with them? And that's basically kind of it. Or like in di- the fifth one, it's like, how does this American guy interact with Russia? And it literally feels like decades of pint up Cold War aggression coming yeah. undone as just Moscow is just destroyed for some reason. Yeah. Well, you know, it's always crazy shit. Well, it's so weird that they go there and they're, like, making this big deal about this kind of post-Soviet politics because it just feels like the earlier ones were, were, like, pretty, like, post-Cold War. Like, it wasn't about, like, Russia, really, or, like, the Soviet Union. And so it's just very weird that they're, like, let's do this, like, Cold War kind of 80s throwback because Die Hard is coming at the end of that.
2: Yeah, totally. But, I mean, you see all through those, like, I don't know, it's always about, like, the response of, like... That, like, I guess if you want to talk about Richard Nixon, like, the the silent majority kind of assumed, like, conservative white man and, like, how he responds to just, you know, just new stuff in the world. That's not actually new, but just, like, starting to, like, Mm -hmm. become more of a part of his life, whether it's, like, racial minorities, whether that's, like, women's rights, getting divorced.
1: It's worth mentioning, I think, that there is recently a quote-unquote diehard in a school school shooting movie called run hide fight um which was originally just produced by the company cinestate who have produced the movies by s craig zoller and they're trying to like reach the silent basically the silent majority film going audience that hollywood ignores and then they were sort of outed as defending a lot of abusers and stuff and have kind of died um a little bit but now like they were they kind of went into business with Ben Shapiro's expanded multimedia empire based in Nashville. And it was sort of Ben Shapiro trying to break into film distribution, um, But it's just very telling, you know, like enabling that model or taking that model and using it to this very conservative ends of like guns defend people, they help, you need a gun, guns should be in schools. Well, also just like seeing it as like the product of a company whose like
2: output is just like, you know, conservative ideals. And it's just like, that's like another way for them to express
1: that. Yeah, literally. I mean, it's just like that. It just, yeah, it just lends itself to that very naturally. And, And there's just these sort of, i don't know there's there's just a lot of across these these movies a lot of common features of like ways that these the sort of masculinity is reaffirmed of like i don't know i think of like the rock like nicholas cage's character is like an audiophile who's like obsessed with records in the beginning of the movie he gets like a beatles record shipped to work and his co like why'd you get that here and he's like because my wife thinks it's ridiculous to spend six hundred dollars on an lp i'm a beatles maniac um, and like, I noticed that in a lot of kind of action. I mean, the Bob Odenkirk, nobody movie, he has a record collection. And, um, I think that I feel like I made a note of something in one of the Die Hard movies where he's like, Oh, it's like live free or die hard where he's like playing fortunate son, I think. And he's like, this is real music. Um, and it's, again, it's just one of those like rock music, analog technology, Real masculinity. Yeah. It's always about the organic versus the synthetic. So it's always about the old
2: versus the new, you know, truly, but which part is organic, you know?
1: Yeah. I mean, it does. That's an interesting connection to like the hard bodies thing, just because it's like, Oh, it's saying like, Oh, Rambo, that's artificial. That's roided up shit. Like this is the real man. This is a real man. He gets hurt. Sometimes he bleeds, he juices, but I think like a good movie to, maybe end on is um i just briefly mentioned it earlier and i mean it's not really a like diehard knockoff but silent trigger with dolph lundgren which is just like an abstract like a sniper and his spotter set up in a skyscraper well it's another
2: one where it's like the attacks the assaults come from just like a lot of like unforeseen origins like you know well it's just mainly a movie that's also about not knowing much information about what's going on it's like mm-hmm. a sniper who doesn't know his targets because the business and doesn't know who his employer is. And then his employer turns on him. So very kind of just yeah. like unknown from all sides.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's like the abstracted opposite of Die Hard, where like you have the Japanese and the European and the American. And it's just like, where is this movie set? Like Eastern Europe, Dolph Lundgren is, you know, Scandinavian, his spotter is English and you've got these American security guards, but it's this like, kind of like Yugoslavian wasteland or something. And you're just like, and you don't know nothing. Everything's vague. You know, it's like the family, the business, the boss, which I really lays, I don't know, it just lays bare that like all of these movies are again, replaceable, interchangeable. Like it just abstracts it to make that clear.
2: Definitely. I mean, Silent Trigger is absolutely worth a watch. It's pretty amazing, but it's another one of those like, I don't know where even like just most of those like interchangeable parts in that movie are kind of just like indistinct and you're just left with like just the movement Mm -hmm. or the just like the kind of the formula or the structure and it's great.
1: Yeah I mean it really just leaves the bare bones of like this is like people in a building struggling against some kind of force that they can't fully see or get a hold Mm -hmm. on. Yeah it gets to the soul of it. Yeah die silent don't die hard. Mm-hmm. Die, die loud. Or easy. <laughs> um, yeah, anyways, that's that's it. That's it for the action movies for now, I guess. Yeah. In
2: action mode. We'll talk about something else for a bit, but this has been Hotbox the Cinema,
1: episode 22. So where can people find you, Seth?
2: I'm on Twitter at ASAP @sunscreen, the podcast Hotbox the Cinema, and where can they find you, Nadine? I'm on Twitter
1: at Trilmore Girls. We're also on Instagram, Hotbox the Cinema, Big Cartel, mm-hmm. Hotbox the Cinema. New yeah. stickers going up very soon. Once I get mm-hmm. them in the mail, very exciting. new drop. about those, yeah.
2: You could go do your graffiti, or you could just like put it in your room and not actually take the paper off.
1: Yeah, you can do whatever you want with it. You can string it up, put it on your body for a day, walk around with it like a band aid,
2: like a voted sticker
1: yeah exactly yeah
2: i hotboxed i listened to this podcast that's a good sticker idea actually is fake voting stickers
1: <laughs> i do we do have the you wouldn't listen to a podcast or you wouldn't download a podcast sticker yeah. coming out so you wouldn't vote for a podcast yeah fuck electoralism don't vote for us yeah write us out cross us out <laughs> anyways until next time keep on talking
3: She don't like this other guy. But they're just like me. Kingdom for you.
0: B's banging my brick phone Same time banging my iPhone 10 It went out to this ringtone Did my time and now time it flew This one's bad than I've been told one help me come line this view Golden for much as skin tone Come run here that's a stupid move. Could phone this number, ringtone sounds nice in summer Sweet. Sweet one golden lover, golden. and I had an iPhone same colour Both bros on the ride take cover, three man step three hunter. Four man dash three suffer, cell site trap mans runner Miss cool emoji sent, one light round for spent, charged up 40% Shotgun, all he possessed My dog, he will find your scent ah. Billy Van came round and went but left and I found my breath Kenny Bop, don't dance, we steps step. Bad B's banging my brick fold Same time banging my iPhone Seat It went out to this ringtone Did my time and now time it free This was bad than I've been told Then one help me come line this you Golden fold, match your skin tone Ten. Come running in that's a stupid stick Bad B's banging my brick fold same time banging my iPhone, two. Seat went out to this ring Three, one answer this ringtone. Did my time and now time it two. play This one's bad than I've been told. Then one help me come line this you. Golden for my chest skin tone. Ten. Come running, that's a stupid move. And I had a five lesson in school. Five. In maps had incoming calls. Can't ride out indoors. Uh-huh. Door or backpack explore. Rise up smoking war. Small firing tool. You don't know why you lying for. Slip from a sliding door. And it's mad that my phone don't ring. Must be the phone or sim Could be the one pop or twin Hit bro or your last of kin And it's mad that my phone don't ring Must be the phone or sim Could be the one pop or twin Hit bro you're last of kin Bad bees banging my brick phone Same time banging my iPhone 2 Deep one to this ringtone Did my time and now time it clear This one's bad than I've been told Leng help me come line this you. Golden phone my your skin tone. Come run in, that's a stupid move. Bad bees banging my brick phone, same time banging my iPhone too. went one answer, this ringtone. Did my time and now time it flew. This one's bad than I've been told. Leng one, help me come line this you. Golden phone match your skin tone. Come run in, that's a stupid move.